This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more Rand analysis, reports, and commentary on issues at the forefront of today's policy debate, visit www.rand.org. Good afternoon. My name is uh, Wynne Burkle. I'm uh, the Director of Congressional Relations for the Rand Corporation. I'd like to welcome you all here today. Um, uh, I'd like you to welcome to Rand's Congressional Briefing on the War Within, Preventing Suicide in the U.S. Military. Um, we'd like to thank the Armed Services Personnel Subcommittee, Chairman Wilson and his staff for in making uh, today's briefing possible. Um, at, at this moment, I'd like to just say one word about Rand, then uh, introduce Terry Tenillion. Uh, the Rand Corporation is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. RAND focuses on the issues that matter most, such as health, education, national security, international affairs, law, and business. Um, as a nonpartisan organization, RAND operates independent of political and commercial pressures. Uh, we serve the public interest by helping lawmakers reach informed decisions on the nation's pressing challenges. Um, and now I'd like to, it's my pleasure to introduce Terry Tenillion. She is the co-director for the Center for Military Health Policy Research and is a senior research at the RAND Corporation. Terry. Thank you and good afternoon. It's great to see many of you and thank you for coming. Um, as you know, the current conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan represent the largest strain on our nation's all-volunteer force since its inception in the early 1970s. These conflicts have exacted a, a substantial toll on our servicemen and women. This toll goes beyond the casualty figures and extends to the stress that the repetitive deployments and high operational tempo can have on the individual service member and his or her family. In addition to RAND's research streams on manpower needs in an era of extended conflict, our portfolio of research includes numerous studies that cross several domains and examine the effect of these recent deployments on U.S. service members and their families. Today's topic focuses on an area of increasing public and congressional concern, suicide among U.S. Army military personnel. The briefing today highlights a study released earlier this year that examined the current evidence detailing suicide epidemiology in the military, identified best practice suicide prevention programs, described suicide prevention activities used in the Department of Defense and across each service, and provided recommendations to ensure that these activities reflect best practices. This work was carried out through RAND Center for Military Health Policy, Policy Research and was sponsored by the Office of the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Health Affairs. The study that will be presented today was led by Dr. Rajiv Ramchand. Rajiv is a behavioral scientist at RAND who received his doctorate in psychiatric epidemiology from the John Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. He has been studying military mental health since he joined RAND in 2006. His studies include those that look at the types of combat stressors that military personnel encounter in Iraq and Afghanistan, explanations for the varying estimates of post-traumatic stress disorder among those who served in these conflicts, and looking at alcohol use among those who've been previously deployed. He continues to do work on the epidemiology and suicide of, in the military and will be sharing the findings from his most recent studies with the research he'll present today. I'd like to ask that the audience members hold their questions until the end of the briefing when Dr. Ramshad will be happy to answer any of them. Please note that we are videotaping today's presentation. The video will be available on RAND's website at www.rand.org and you can listen to the discussion by subscribing to the RAND's Congressional Briefing Series on podcasts on iTunes. Thank you. With that, Dr. Ramshad. Thanks, Terry. Yeah. 
Thank you, everyone. I also wanted to reiterate uh, Terry's thanks for all of you, to all of you for showing up today. And I also wanted to acknowledge uh, two of my co-authors who are here today, Lisa J. Cox and Chris Pernan. Um, Joy Acosta and Rachel Burns uh, couldn't make it. The last decade has seen a number of service members in the U U.S. service members uh, lose their lives, many in support of uh, operations Iraqi freedom and enduring freedom in Iraq and Afghanistan. These, this blue chart, these blue um, bars show the number of people, service members, who, um, who died in Iraq and Afghanistan in the past decade, from 2001 to 2009. And what you'll notice here is that as the security climate has changed in that region and in that area, so too has the number of suicides. They've kind of correlated with the security environment. When you compare this to the number of suicides shown in the red, um, you'll see that we haven't seen that same correlation. And in fact, in the past decade, the number of suicides among active duty uh, personnel has increased. The DOD um, became aware through their systematic surveillance of this increase in suicides. And they wanted to look at what they were currently doing to prevent suicides in the military, to take a look at the programs and initiatives and policies that they had in place to prevent suicides. They turned to RAND to, to look at those programs and those initiatives they had placed uh, for preventing suicides and to identify whether those efforts reflected what was scientifically or empirically validated or what was really just state of the art with respect to suicide prevention practices. The Assistant Secretary of Defense for Health Affairs turned to RAND. RAND's National Defense Research Institute is a federally funded research and development center, FFRDC, and enables RAND to really build on its expertise in certain areas to address kind of issues of the utmost importance to the DOD um, in a timely fashion. We also had uh, established expertise in the area looking at kind of behavioral health issues related to service members and deployment, uh, most notably in the 2008 study, The Invisible Wounds of War. Our research study was really focused on three questions. First, we had to catalog what the DOD was doing overall, as well as what each of the services were doing to prevent suicide. This wasn't necessarily one-stop shopping. There wasn't one institution or organization within the services or within the DOD that knew all of the activities. So it required lots of interviews and reviews of guidance and policies across the services to really get a comprehensive list of the activities and initiatives in place to prevent suicide. At the same time, we were looking at the, at the literature as well as interviewing experts in the field of suicide prevention to identify what is considered state-of-the-art practices for preventing suicide. I'll tell you uh, right now, we don't use the term evidence-based, but state, we state state-of-the-art. The criteria for evidence-based typically requires a randomized control trial to show that an intervention actually causally reduced suicide. And there's very few uh, research studies that have demonstrated that. However, as many of you probably know, we've been studying suicide for a very long time, and so there are some, some uh, best practices or state-of-the-art. There is some evidence and some guidance out there about what's likely to work. Our research study then kind of combined these two arms of research to look at, well, what do the DOD initiatives look like, and do they reflect those uh, practices that are considered state-of-the-art? And from that analysis, we came up with some guidance and recommendations for enhancing current approaches to prevent suicide. So I'll start by reviewing a little bit about what we know about the epidemiology of suicide in the U.S. military. 
This rate, this uh, graph here shows the suicide rate, which has hovered at around 11 per 100,000 from 2001 to 2007. So this is in the civilian population. What I fir first want uh, to point your attention to is that the most recent data for which we have national estimates of suicide is to 2007. So there's a three-year lag from when the CD, from uh, the time that the CDC reports suicide, and that just in and of itself makes timely comparisons between what the military is currently facing and the national rate really challenging. What's also challenging, however, is that the national rate, it's kind of, it's an unfair comparison to compare what's happening in the national population and the military population, because the two groups are just very different. Most notably, if you just take the gender composition, if you assume that the civilian population is roughly equally distributed between males and females, um, the military population isn't. And this is really important when looking at suicide, because we know that men are four to five times more likely to die by suicide than uh, women are. So what we did was calculate an expected rate. So given the demographic profile of the US military, what would the expected suicide rate be, just given the demographic composition? And so that's represented in that green line. And you see it is just below 20 per 100,000. So how does the rate actually compare? Well, that's demonstrated by this red line here. And what you'll see is that it was less than half the national average, uh, or less than half the expected rate, rather, up until around 2005, when it started to increase rather steadily. And right now, it's hovering at around 18 or 19 per 100,000. So it's almost a doubling. The, the million dollar question, of course, is what's happened from 2007 to 2010. And as I said before, we just don't have that data. There's some who say that the rate may stay the same. And there's some who, say, who state that given the economic conditions, and particularly that the US is currently facing, we may see an increase in suicides in the civilian population. Like I said, the data doesn't exist right now, so only time will tell. But it does make the comparison a little bit difficult. This increase in the suicide rate, which is represented here by that dashed uh, red line in the DOD, is being driven primarily by an increase in the rate in the Army, which is represented here by the yellow line. Uh, you'll see that the Marines in that purple line have co consistently had a higher rate, and the Army now really almost parallels what that rate is in the Marine Corps, which is right now at around 20 per 100,000, a little above that. There's a lot of concern about how deployments are associated with suicides. We don't know very much about the relationship between deployment and suicide. So a lot of people have speculated or hypothesized that the length of duration may impact deployments or that the number of times people deploy may impact, may impact suicide. And we just have no evidence on that right now. What we do know is that there are some suicides that occur in theater, so in the war zone. That bar on the far left shows that around 20% of suicides in the DOD um, occurred in theater, and the majority um, of those that occurred in theater were in the Army and the Marines. So the ones on the right, the, the, the graph on the left, the bar on the left, really um, is a compilation of these numbers to the right. So you'll see that the majority of the suicides in the, in the military uh, in the Army, or not the majority, the, around a third of the suicides in the Army and in the Marines um, occurred in theater. This signifies to us that the prevention campaigns in place really need to be applicable to the theater or the war zone environment. And this is just a snapshot for 2008. Before I finish talking about the epidemiology of suicide, I just want to reiterate that 
the numbers that I've just described really are only suicides, are really only tracked of suicides of members of the active component. So it doesn't include members of the reserve component who are not activated. So if a reservist is activated and uh, kills him or herself, then that will be included in the DOD rates, in the rates that I presented here. If the reservist is, on, is in the reserve component or is not activated, or if a National Guards uh, member is not activated, that will not be included in the DOD surveillance. And right now, we don't know what the suicide rate is or the number of suicides among members of, of non-activated reservists or members of the National Guard. There, is, there are initiatives to begin tracking that, but it's, they're really um, at the beginning stages. I'd like to now talk about characteristics of state-of-the-art prevention programs. So what the research suggests are the best ways to prevent suicide. Rand identified six components of a comprehensive suicide prevention strategy that the evidence supports as being um, uh, state-of-the-art for preventing suicide. It should raise awareness and promote self-care. So here you can think about messages from leaders, brochures and posters about suicide, resources available, as well as initiatives focused on promoting self-care, which could be uh, managing stress, proper diet, proper sleep, things of that nature. A strategy should have a, a, a process that identifies persons at risk for suicide. The number one, the, the risk factors for suicide that have been established in the scientific literature are prior suicide attempts, mental health problems, um, as well as substance use disorders. Those are the three risk factors with the strongest amount of evidence behind them. So when we're talking about identifying people at risk, we might be looking for those characteristics. For facilitating access to, quali uh, to quality care, we're really talking about overcoming the barriers that service members may face in accessing care in the first place. And those barriers could be things about stigma associated with behavioral health care, but they also be, are, and we know from past uh, research, that service members are really concerned or they have misperceptions of the ineffectiveness of behavioral health care, as well as they're concerned about the impact that seeking behavioral health care will have on their careers and the privacy or confidentiality that may not be afforded to them when they seek this type of care, especially in military settings. The delivery of quality care is, uh, we really are talking about providing quality behavioral health care, and again, there are three dimensions you can think about. This is increased awareness of mental health problems for primary care providers. It's in the provision of quality care more generally, so quality evidence-based treatments for depression among behavioral health care providers. And we also heard from many of our experts that the majority of behavioral health care providers don't necessarily have adequate training in suicide risk assessment and management specifically. So we're also talking about training behavioral health healthcare providers on what to do when they experience or when they see somebody who's in a suicidal crisis or experiencing suicidal thoughts. There's some evidence to say that restricting access to lethal means will also prevent suicides. So here, the way medications are packaged, for example, blister packs as opposed to bottles. Um, there's also some evidence about the way guns are stored and the availability of firearms. Um, and this has kind of been shown to reduce suicides. And finally, an appropriate response. Um, if, if an organization responds appropriately to a suicide and it can, achieve, it can achieve three things. It can help survivors grieve, but it can also potentially interrupt possible suicide clusters as well as prevent any contagion. There's a notion that some people, uh, when, they, when they know somebody who's died by suicide, may uh, have an underlying vulnerability and it may compel them to, to decide to take their own lives. So an appropriate response can help uh, prevent that from occurring. 
The strongest evidence that these um, components can actually reduce suicide, the strongest evidence comes in where I was talking before about the delivery of quality care and restricting access to lethal means. However, in, o in, o in order for quality care to be effective at preventing suicide, we really think that these first three initiatives or these first three components need to exist. And these um, components actually work together to prevent suicide. They shouldn't be think thought of necessarily as independent silos. And we've described this here. So ideally, you have an individual engaging in behaviors to promote their well-being or their wellness. However, that individual may experience some sort of distress from a multitude of reasons. The ideal scenario when they experience that distress is that they know how to self-refer, they feel safe doing so, and they choose to do so. And the person that they refer to is a behavioral health care provider who's trained and can provide quality evidence-based care. However, if this isn't possible, that the second order is that the individual will at least know how to refer to his or her friends, family, leaders, Second to that is that friends, family, and leaders will know how to ask if they see signs of uh, warning signs of suicide or if they see uh, a change in behavior, that they'll know how to ask that person uh, whether they're okay. However, in order for this uh, component to work, for friends, leaders, officers to have, to play a role, an effective role in preventing suicide, it's imperative that they too know how to refer, know how to, who to refer to, and that they feel safe doing so. So again, that means restricting those, uh, overcoming those barriers that may impede not only an individual's decision to seek quality care, but their friend's decision to refer them to somebody who provides quality care. Next, I'd like to talk about what the DOD is currently doing to prevent suicide and how this maps on to uh, what's considered state of the art. The philosophies of the current approaches, there are multiple things happening with across the services and in each of the and in the DOD generally, but you can really sum it up in a few sentences, a few words. The Army relies heavily on a buddy system where peers are trained to be gatekeepers. Peers are trained to recognize warning signs of uh, suicide, changes in behaviors, and how to refer. So this is really exemplified by the Army's uh, current um, program called ACE, Ask care escort, so they're trained to ask if their peer is in distress, to provide immediate care for them, and then to escort them to a behavioral health care provider or a leader or a chaplain. They also have a lot of resiliency training happening, um, especially as it relates to deployment, so being trained in how to be resilient before um, going into theater. The Navy looks at suicide as an adverse event on a stress continuum. So they think that uh, suicide happens when people are in extreme cases of stress, and they really stress early intervention. So we should mitigate stressful experiences before they escalate in severity. The Air Force uses a community-based approach, and this has been written about extensively. The Air Force developed its Air Force Suicide Prevention Program in 1996, um, and it's a community-based approach involved. There's many components to it and facets. Um, there's some uh, programs, initiatives, trainings. There's also some policy uh, changes that were implemented, all within the guise of kind of uh, preventing suicide. And it really promotes a culture change that everyone is involved in suicide prevention. The Marines also have a community-based approach, but their, their approach is somewhat of a hybrid between the Air Force and the Army, because it's also a community-based approach that everyone is involved in suicide prevention, but they rely heavily on gatekeepers as well. Um, in their model, for example, they have a program that teaches front desk clerks at gyms um, and, other, and other settings to recognize uh, uh, people in distress and then to intervene and to escort them to behavioral health care. 
this is how the military, how we've identified that the military programs compare with what is considered state of the art. And, and you don't need to necessarily write this down in your packets in the research brief. We've reproduced this graph for you so, so you can take uh, note of it. Um, but I did want to highlight a few things. As you'll see, the top end of this, the top part of this chart really shows yellows and greens, so where the services are doing pretty well. So raising awareness and promoting self-care. We see lots of brochures and lots of posters of that nature. And you see a little less activity happening towards the bottom of this chart, and that's where the red, where we highlight initiatives in the red. Um, and as you noticed before when I said the most evidence of preventing suicide is really happening within that delivery of quality care and restricting access to lethal means. So with respect to those two domains, we see really no policies about means restriction in the Army and the Navy and the Marines, and we see very li limited guidance in the Air Force about means restriction. For delivery of quality care, we know that uh, the Air Force and the Marines have done trainings on suicide risk assessment and management for their behavioral health care providers, and we were informed of no kind of similar trainings happening in the Army and the Navy. However, I will say that you know, it was beyond the scope of our project to look entirely across the quality of care provided by the behavioral health care providers across those services. But we were at least informed of these, particularly in these specific initiatives in the Air Force and Marines. And finally, just with respect to facilitating access to quality care, we saw lots of initiatives happening about reducing stigma. And mostly this involved uh, locating behavioral health care providers in non-traditional settings. So in primary care settings, for example, or on battleships. But we saw very little efforts going on about educating um, service members about the benefits of accessing uh, behavioral health care. And we know that you know, there's lots of concerns, for example, about the side effects of prescription medications. And we saw no initiatives that really address that issue. The Real Warriors campaign that many of you might be familiar with in the DOD is starting to, to get at this, but there's very limited activity happening about um, education about the benefits of behavioral health care. So I just want to conclude with an overview of our findings as well as kind of highlight the 14 recommendations that we made to the DOD. So most DOD efforts and those in the services fall under raising awareness, gatekeeper trainings, and addressing stigma by putting behavioral health care providers in these non-traditional settings. And we say that more efforts are needed to promote self-care. Um, one expert we spoke to, for example, said that uh, before they deploy, service members need to be prepared to think about what will they do when, if and when they receive a Dear John letter so that they're prepared for these, these kinds of experiences. And that's what we talk about when we're talking about promoting self-care. Facilitating access to behavioral health care is an area that needs improvement. Uh, education of behavioral health care providers, specifically in suicide risk assessment and management creative policies to restrict access to lethal means in the services, as well as guidance um, and policies to establish uh, procedures so that commanders know how to respond to suicides that are occurring. We made 14 recommendations for the DOD. Two are overarching. The first is for systematic surveillance. We have pretty good surveillance, especially among, the active, among active duty service members. Um, the DODSER, many of you might be familiar with the DODSER, it's the Department of Defense Suicide Event Report. That was in, established in 2008. So it's a new initiative and it continues to evolve, but it's a, it's a step in the right direction. So with systematic surveillance and what's needed is to ensure that the definitions of suicide attempts and particularly used across the services and within services, so across installations, are consistent. 
evaluation of new initiatives. There are lots of programs out there, but very few in, um, evaluations of these programs. So we essentially don't know if they're effective at producing uh, what they intend to produce, whether that's um, you know, very specifically a reduction in suicide or a reduction in suicide attempts or even increased referral patterns among those trained to be gatekeepers. So more evaluation of these efforts are needed to ensure that they're effective and to make modifications as necessary. For raising awareness and promoting self-care, more initiatives are needed that teach skill building and help seeking, which I spoke to earlier. We also talk about forming partnerships. The risk factors for suicide and the ways that we can prevent suicide share many commonalities for many adverse events, such as domestic violence, alcohol abuse, or drug abuse. And so it's important that these, those responsible for these different um, efforts and these different outcomes are talking with each other to make sure that there's no duplication of efforts, as well as consistent messaging, because they are many times giving the same messages, but in different domains. That partnership and that collaboration could be formal, such as the Air Force's Integrated Delivery System and CABE. Um, they have programs in place now that, that formalize this collaboration, or it could be informal. And the Marines, all their prevention initiatives are located, for example, in the same building on the same floor, and they say that they, they routinely meet together. So it's, it, hap it occurs more informally. For procedures that identify uh, those at high risk, as I said before, there's a heavy reliance on gatekeeper training, um, but there's very few, there's very little research about the effectiveness of these, these types of trainings. And so it's really important that as the military continues to pursue these initiatives, they themselves evaluate them to ensure that it's producing the behavior change that they, that they seek from them. Uh, conduct research to identify risk factors. There's a large study in the Army underway that's, that's specifically pursuing this aim. It's the Army STARS study, um, and it will identify risk factors. These studies need control groups to make sure that the, the risk factors that are identified are really unique risk factors for suicide. Respectfully ensure continuity of care. There's many times that service members can fall through the gaps, and you can imagine this happening as they move between installations from reserve status to active status, um, even as they go to theater and return from theater. So it's important that the care that they're receiving, that they receive continuous care, and that, and that they're really cared for throughout these different transition points. For facilitating access to quality care, Inform service members about the benefits and the repercussions for seeking uh, behavioral health care, and this should be informed by research. So not only should they know that there are benefits to seeking care, but research should be done to show what is the impact on a service member's career of seeking behavioral health care. Um, a lot of people say that there is no impact, or there's some, but there's very little research that's been conducted that really shows this. Um, and there's a strong... Um, anecdotal evidence that flies around um, about what happens, but we think really systematic research is needed to inform this discussion and these messages. Inform service members about referral endpoints. Behavioral health care providers, there, there are many of them. They include psychologists, social workers, psychiatrists, and there's a heavy reliance on chaplains in the military. So ensuring um, that service members know the difference between these endpoints, what they're trained to provide, what they can provide, as well as the confidentiality afforded by each. Improve communications between caregivers. Here, for example, we heard many disparate stories about the relationship between chaplains and behavioral health care providers. At some installations, it seems to be working very well. In some installations, in some communities, it seems to be a little bit more acrimonious. So really improving communication between these referral endpoints, because they are working towards the same end. And finally, assess the capacity of chaplains and providers. Um, as these 
as these gatekeeper trainings in particularly are more effective and these and more initiatives are in place to refer people to behavioral health care we have to ensure that there's an adequate capacity to actually meet the demand that these that these uh, referral strategies may produce and so research is needed and, and to assess the capacity of whether uh, there is that all needs are being met and this needs to be kind of a continuous process for the provision of quality care, we make a kind of a general recommendation that provider that to train providers and chaplains to deliver quality care, particularly for suicide risk assessment and management, um, where we hear that uh, and where the evidence really suggests that training may be lacking. Restricting access to lethal means, um, we discuss creating. Uh, considering creative ways to restrict access and thinking about all the different means by which service members may uh, decide to take their lives. Um, there are creative ways and there are precedents across different um, organizations and institutions about how this could be achieved. And finally, the appropriate response. And we talk about provide policies and procedures to facilitate um, what's referred to as postvention. And that just refers to its preventing suicide after a suicide occurs. And like I said before, we really just want to provide guidance so that when a suicide occurs, it doesn't necessarily rock the installation and that people have a plan, they know how to proceed, and there's guidance and policies that help them respond to the suicide. I just want to conclude that a lot of this, this is a synthesis of the information and, and all this information and more is contained in, in the book that I know that you all received. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.